This is HPR episode 1748 entitled, Scale 13x part 5 of 6. It is hosted by Lord Brash and Lutt, and is about 68 minutes long. The summary is, four interviews from Scale X13. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Greetings, Hacker Public Radio, Lord Drakenblut here at Scale13X, and I am currently at the Lynn Hess booth. And who do I have the pleasure of speaking to? This is Cecil Watson, the uh, project leader of Lynn Hess. Now, for people who may not know, what what is Lynn Hess in a nutshell? Well, Lynn Hess in a nutshell is the Linux entertainment system, and the idea is really just to make it as easy as possible to make it, you know, for anyone to create their own T-bone steroids, essentially. Now, Linhess has been around quite a while. Could you talk a little bit about the history of Linhess for people? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's been over 11 years now, and it actually started off uh, with my, my desire to have, you know, a, a TiVo box, if you will, but I didn't want the TiVo because it didn't offer the, the all the functionality I need. At the time, TiVo just did television, but I wanted something that would do, you know, television, uh, my music management, uh, what, what have you, and I found Myth TV. Uh, when I first installed Myth TV, it was on, on Linux Mandrake, and that was a, a bit of a bear. I always wanted to use Debian because of their package management system, and uh, re- really, it's kind of a confluence of events. I learned about Nopix Live Linux on CD. I booted it up, and wow, there there I was with you know Linux running live off the CD with a desktop, and. You know, to go back to that confluence, you know, around that same time was when you could first install uh, Nopix onto a hard drive. So I installed it. One of the Myth TV developers at the time, he had uh, built Debian packages, added the repo, app get update, app get install Myth TV, and there it was. It pulled in, pulled in everything it needed. And uh, you know, again, <laughs> I'm saying the word confluence a lot because that's 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 exactly what it was. Um, when you first started. Well, around that, around that same time was when you could, uh, they had instructions for remastering Opics, and it just went off in my head, you know, this is what I'm going to do. This is going to be my contribution to open source. I'm going to take Opics, remove things that I don't want, add things that, you know, I do want to, that, that makes sense for a home entertainment appliance, and this will be what I give back to open source. And, you know, it, it's uh, later on this year, it'll be 12 years. And now, Linhess is its current name. What did it originally start out as? If people want to you know, have a little more of the history, the original name was not Myth. It was a uh, uh, Nopix. Since it was a remaster of Nopix, we got the Nop and Myth for Myth TV. And uh, it's going on about what six years now, I guess. Uh, we decided to, to use Arch Linux as, as the base of it. So there was a, well, we thought, well, you know, we're going to use something else as the base. It, it, you know, makes sense to do a name change. And really, from the very beginning, uh, I've referred to my system at home as, you know, uh, the Linux home entertainment system. So it was just, it made, it made natural sense to call it Linhess. Now, with your interest in Debian, why did you make the decision to go with Arch instead of using Debian as your new base? Package management. That's, that's the quick and easy answer. Well, it, well, aside from package management, you know, uh, the Arch philosophy, philosophy is, you know, keeping it simple. And really, it, it was synergistic, if you will, because the entire idea with, with NotMyth was just to make it easy. It was TV. It should be easy. So, And, and really, uh, the, the Arch guys do, do a great job with, with Pac-Man. It's, it's super easy to build a package with, 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 their, with, with what they have. 
So what can someone accomplish with a Winhess system at home? Uh, well, like I said, it's uh, TiVo on steroids, like uh, TiVo or other DVRs. Well, unlike some other DVRs, I should say, uh, it'll flag commercials for you. So if you want to skip commercials, it'll automatically skip the commercials. Um, you can transcode uh, the shows you recorded. So, for instance, let's say you have a, a mobile device and you want to take your shows with you, you can do that. Uh, my brother was uh, in, in the Air Force, and when he was uh, stationed overseas, there were some certain shows that he followed, and he couldn't, you know, follow them overseas. Well, he's my brother. I had the ability to, to, to you know, get, get those shows to him. So I recorded them over the air. I flagged the commercials, took out the commercials, and I made a custom DVDs for him so he could, you know, keep up on his programs. So if someone were interested in getting started, um, what is kind of the the most basic setup you would say they would need? Well, the most basic setup is, uh, well, I, I'll speak a little bit about the MIT-TV architecture, and that's it's a front end and a, and a back end. So you could have those both running on one box, which would be the most basic setup, or you could have multiple systems, you know, throughout your house. You could have multiple backends. Uh, you'd have one master backend, uh, a slave backend, and, and really the, the easiest way to to, to um, you know define that is is, is the backend takes care of recording, you know, your scheduling and so forth. So you could have a backend, uh, a slave backend. You could have just the front end, and, and the front end is essentially what you use to interface with the system. Very cool. Now, what does your home system look like? I would imagine that as the creator of Lynn Hess, you've probably had one of the more over-the-top setups. And hopefully, I'm not mistaken. <laughs> well, at, at home, I really only have two systems. Um, I have a master backend in my living room, and that has, uh, what, uh, six terabytes at the moment. And I have a slave backend, which is also capable of recording. In, in my bedroom, I have uh, uh, three over-the-air tuners, so I could record things over the air. And I have five, Verizon Fios at home, and I use a, a cable card, uh, and so I could record four four streams uh, from from Verizon Fios with that with that cable card in my in my system. And I also have a NAS that currently has uh, about uh, thirty terabytes or so, where I you know store store my recordings and, and whatnot. Uh, a little more impressive setup than I think you were giving yourself credit for. You know, over, you know, almost 40, 50 terabytes of storage. Yeah, that's a lot more than most people have at home. Um, thinking about things, with the way, you know, a lot of services more and more are coming online, being available to just be streamed instead of having to do um, video or doing, you know, over-the-air capture or even using um, a cable card. How do you see myth staying relevant, you know, in that kind of, where, you know, the need to do your own recordings seems to be diminishing more and more? Well, I don't know if it's if it's diminishing more and more. I, you know, I think uh, a lot of people that I've talked to over the years, you know, they want to cut the cord, if you will, and, and, and really the first thing those people think about in, when they're cutting the cord is going over the air. Um, I live in, in L.A., and, you know, depending on where you live, of course, you can get over 100 channels over the air. You know, secondary to that is, uh, you know, Netflix. Uh, we actually just added Netflix to the distribution, so um, there's Hulu. We've had Hulu in our repository for years now. So as, as, as more... Well, more things will be shifting to, to you know, streaming over the Internet. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, the, the content producers, if you will, will, will be enlightened and they'll see, you know, well, let's, let's do this with HTML5. You know, let's, uh, you know let, let's, let's be friendly to everyone. And, you know, I mean, if, if I won't say I'm a big fan of DRM because, you know, if, if I purchase something, it, it's mine. It, you know, as, as, it, as I, it's, it should be. Um, so, if there are things that require DRM, you know, we would definitely look into into doing that because, we, again, we want to give people that option of you know getting their meter from where they want to get it to from, and we just want to make it easy for them. Very cool. Now, um, what are some of the more 
unique features of you know Myth TV or Lenhess that someone just getting started might not know about, but you think they should know about? Well, like I said about Myth TV, it has a front end back end architecture, so you know you hear commercials now saying, "Oh, you can record four channels at once." Well, I was doing that ten plus years ago. Uh, you know, you get a, a DVR from you know your provider. It has what maybe a, a 500 gigabyte hard drive, maybe a terabyte. Well, you can just keep adding. You know, like I said earlier, I have you know upwards of uh, 40 plus plus terabytes at home. Uh, with regards to Myth TV, there isn't much we do with it. But as far as things that you know, we we introduce in Linhas, like I said, we have Netflix, and all that can be accomplished uh, via via our menu. Um, you know, we have supports for various remotes. If we detect what your remote is during the initial boot up, um, you could use a remote for insta- to install the entire operating system. I mean, is there another operating system out there you could think of that you could install with a remote? One. And and it's in a very similar space. I've actually done using um, using just a point and click key or remote was a um, XBMC Live install. Okay, okay well, well that, that, that's fair, but you know, I don't, you know, I, from installation, you know, configuration, daily use, you can just use just, just the remote. So, like, it, it, our thought from the very beginning it was appliance. So, that's, that's where our focus is to make it as, as simple as possible. So, um, if people were interested in getting involved with the Linhas project, where, or you know, getting involved using, where should they head to? Well, we have a website, linhas.org. Um, you know, we have a, a forum on the website. Uh, they can they can get on the forum, register, uh, start asking questions. Uh, there's a hardware section on the forum, and that's split up into three different areas. So. You know, if you're looking to build a system, for instance, you look at the tier one section of the of the forum, and that's you know we ask folks to put their their hardware uh, that they've that they've used to build a system on there. So if you go to tier one, you know it's it's just going to work. Very cool. And um, where are some places if people wanted to get involved in Linhas? Um, where are some areas you could use some help? Uh, that's a that's a good question, and I, you know, I, it's I won't necessarily say that's something I've struggled with. You know, when I initially started off with with not myth, I kind of you know there were people who said they were going to do stuff and 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 help out what have you, and that never really came to to fruition. So I just kind of you know in the in the early years, it was just something myself and a, another. Uh, friend, fellow developer, did. We just kind of, you know, took it on our shoulders and ran with it. With Linhas, we've had a couple, couple great guys, you know, help helping us out. Uh, so, you know, if if you truly want to help, you know, uh, you can just get on the forum. Let us know that you want to help. You can send me an email. Let us know that that that, that you want to help. All right. And one question I was asked to try to ask of. Everyone I had interviews with um, this weekend was, "What is your preferred text editor?" <laughs> Vi. All right. Well, there you go, Zoke. Yes, we'll blame Zoke because he was the one who asked the question. So, is there anything you feel like I've missed at this point? You would want you know the Hacker Public Radio audience to know about. Actually, I have one more before we get there. How is um, international support. You know, Lynn Hess is based here in the U.S., but how do you, how have you heard of it working, you know, kind of globally? Uh, I'd say it works well globally. Uh, obviously, I can't, you know, give first-hand accounts, but I know we have users from all over the world. We have folks in Australia. Uh, back in 05, I went to Linux World UK, and there was a guy there who was like, yeah, I came specifically to meet you. So, so I know we have users all over the world. All right, so, and then, as I said a second ago, anything you think I've missed that missed or overlooked you would like the Hacker Public Radio audience to know? 
Well, Lynn Hess is the Linux Home Entertainment System, and, and we spoke primarily about you know Myth TV because it was the core the core of it. But we also have things like uh, games. You know, we have emulators, Mame, Dolphin. Uh, you can view trailers with it. You know, all, all, all kinds of stuff that to us makes sense to include in a home entertainment system. All right. Well, this has been Lord Drakenblut with Cecil Watson at the Lenhas booth at Scale 13X. All right. This is Lord Drakenblut, the Digital Dragon, here at Scale 13X. And, well, I happen to have stumbled across K9. Any of you who know who that is, great. Any of you who don't, stick in. Stick around and you'll find out you might need a screwdriver for this one. So who do I have the uh, pleasure of speaking to right now? You're speaking with John Warthog 9 Holly. All right. So as I said, we've got K9 here in front of me. Uh, tell us, tell the uh, HPR audience a little bit more about K9. So K9 originally is a... Um character from Doctor Who in the uh, late 1970s and early 1980s, and uh, I've gone ahead and recreated him uh, just about one-to-one scale. There's a few concessions here and there, as a, uh, but it's a basically a demo for the, the Minnow Board uh, open hardware project. He's got a uh, um, 64-bit computer bolted into his back, doing a lot of processing, taking a lot of input from sensors, and not quite doing computer vision yet but just about uh, at the point where he could be fully autonomous. All right, so break down what all components we, you have inside of K9 here. So we'll, we'll start from the, uh, the minnow board itself, which is acting as the, the big processing. Actually, can we, let's yes. start with the chassis. Let's oh, okay. go from there and go up. Let's okay. not skip anything. So, okay, well, so we'll, we'll start real low level. He's basically a, a, a tracked, you know, a, uh, kind of like a tank, uh, vehicle made out of wood, uh, cardboard, paper tape, and a bunch of spray paint. Uh, there's a lot of uh, custom angled woodworking going on here, but uh, that feeds into uh, uh, um, a couple of. Uh, there's a couple of batteries that are on the bottom. There's a seven amp and a twelve, uh, a seven amp hour and a ten amp hour, 12, uh, 12 volt LiPoPo batteries down at the bottom providing power to both the middle board uh, itself and to the motor controller thus uh, and the, the, the motors for the dog. And uh, the middle board obviously uh, pulls power off of those batteries, uh, acting as the central processing unit for all the sensors, like the, uh, the gyros, and the accelerometers, the GPS, those kinds of things. And there's a uh, rather extensive uh, motor controller that the middle board communicates with to actually provide power and... Uh, it's got a monitor so you can play movies and get screen uh, stuff on the screen, uh, which is actually relatively accurate to the dog that was on the show. He can talk, rel- uh, says a lot of things from the show, and yeah. Now, what's the uh, motor controller board? Is that something off-the-shelf or something you built an, from the grounds up? Yeah, it's an off-the-shelf uh, product from Robotech, R-O-B-O-T-E-Q, if I remember correctly. So, and I apologize to Robotech if I've spelled your name wrong, but um, it's just an off-the-shelf uh, motor controller that you uh, talks over USB or over a, a serial port over USB. All right. Now, what was the? Uh, and well, actually, there's another thing you're holding in your hand here. We should probably talk about too. That's true. So, uh, so right now he, you know, has the ability to know where he's at, where he's going, and what's going on. However, he has no computer vision sensors yet. Uh, those are getting installed at some point, but uh, it would make it really hard for him to wander around the show on his own. I mean, he could get there, but he'd run into everybody to do it. So I've got a an Xbox 360 controller that uh, I'm issuing commands to him to wander around with. Now, what was the genesis of this project? What's, besides the fact that you're a Whovian and you wanted your own canine, <laughs> what sparked you to build this? So I had... Um, just gotten done doing a rather large uh, Artemis uh, build for the Albuquerque Comic Expo in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and was trying to figure out what to build next, and a friend of mine... Now, Artemis, if I'm not mistaken, that is, for lack of any other better way to put it, that is a Star Trek bridge simulator. Yes. (laughs) 
It, it is a Star Trek bridge simulator, and uh, we built a two-ton bridge that uh, ran at the Albuquerque Comic Expo two years ago now. So after that, you were just looking for something else to satiate. How much time do you have invested in this, and kind of the what has been the process of getting him? getting K-9 to the point he's at now. So, yeah, it, it pretty much boiled down to a friend of mine, you know, she owns her own TARDIS, and she drives it around to conferences, and I'm like, you know what, I should build K-9. So, started on that, and it started out uh, small, get the motor controller working, get the, uh, the computer hooked up, and start going from there, do basic testing, and 180 hours of man hour, you know, build time later, and programming and whatnot, we have the current dog as he exists. Okay, so now getting into the software side of things, yep. what what software is involved? You know, how much is custom? What it what are the tools you've used? You know, just kind of everything. So he uh, he runs a custom Linux distro based on Yocto, which is a, Yocto is a, a um, an open source build system for Linux distributions. So he uh, he runs a custom distro based on that. Uh, the control program in him right now is a completely custom one-off C program that I wrote to, uh, to handle everything, but he runs Linux and he has access to all the standard Linux libraries, and you know, if I wanted to add computer vision, OpenCV would be the way I'd go, you know, you want to add uh, voice processing, you know, Sphinx, all those kinds of things. Now, you have seen there's uh, some gentlemen around here um, with the Cylon.js project, have you ever looked at those guys to maybe see if they could help make some of what you're doing a little easier? Uh, I've seen them running around. I haven't looked at it, to be honest. Uh, a lot of people have actually recommended that I uh, ditch my completely custom operating system and custom programming and switch to, uh, there's a Linux distribution called RoboOS. And I've, you know, they've suggested that a lot. And I just haven't had time to... To, to do it as you know the dog is relatively popular and conferences keep asking me if I'll bring him alright um, is there anything else you think at this point I've missed that you would like the hacker public radio audience to know about no I mean you've you pretty much covered it I mean it's a it's basically been a, a maker kind of project for myself and it just works out that it's a, a, a great vehicle for the middle board to, to kind of run now, this being, you know, a Linux and technology conference, I feel like I kind of need to ask, and is there somewhere people can go to, you know, one, see kind of the build as it's progressed? Let's start there. So, um, if you go out to my Google Plus, uh, yep, it is. <laughs> if you run out to my Google Plus page, and you, uh, which is... Um, plus.google.com slash warthog9 w-a-r-t-h-o-g-9 um, and if you look for the hashtag uh, k9 off of that, k-9 usually, uh, you can see a lot of the, the photos from the build stuff, there's a couple of videos of him very early on falling downstairs and uh, whatnot. So, uh, and beyond that if you just search for you know, k9 and minnow board on the internet you'll find you know, pictures of him at Maker Fair last year and OSCON and all kinds of things like that. Now, is the code you've written for him at this point available anywhere, or is it solely kind of resides strictly on him? The, the code is such a disastrous mess, I'm afraid to let anybody else look at it. And if I, so it is unfortunately custom to him. If anybody really, really wants to look at it, I'm happy to send it to them. But it's kind of a, a, a messy, hacked up, I haven't had time to clean it up and open source it properly kind of code. So. Well, uh, I, I will personally say I've never, I can't count the times I've heard the, it's a hacked up mess, I'm ashamed of the code <laughs> excuse of people not sharing their code. Don't be afraid, man. Pump that thing to GitHub. Maybe someone will get interested and help clean, help you clean up that code. It's quite possible. So, where do you still, you know, besides the uh, vision, what else do you have yet you want to accomplish with K9? So, there's a lot of mechanical things I want to get working. If you, um, if you've seen the show. Uh, there's a lot of things that happen in his head. He's got the ability to kind of spit out ticker tape, and he's got a 
uh, kind of a proboscis that can extend from near his eyeballs, and he's got a laser. And so these are all, there's a bunch of things along those lines that I want to get built into the head and allow him to display things and um, make that all work. And I don't have that currently, so I've got to fundamentally rebuild his entire head get the com- and get the computer vision stuff in there as well. Uh, uh, beyond that, get him... Uh, I would love to get a, uh, a website where he can start uploading and giving telemetry data just straight out to the public internet when he's at conferences. I mean, if he's going to have computer vision, there's no reason why he shouldn't be able to display out to the, you know, live stream his video stream out to the internet and those kinds of things. So if, so if someone were interested in helping you with this project, one place they could potentially really, really help you is with that website of things so you can focus on him, yep. and they could build that out. Yep, that's one particular possibility. All right, and if people wanted to get in contact with you to learn more about K9, what's the best means? Probably the best way is uh, find me on Google Plus and just tag me from there. It's uh, if you go to, like I said, plus.google.com/warthog9, W-A-R-T-H-O-G-9, you should be able to find me. All right. Well, this has been Lord Drakenblut with. Warthog 9 here at Scale 13X. And, well, of course, we can't forget K9. Have a good day, folks. All right, this is Lord Darkenboot at Scale 13X, and currently I'm sitting with Michael Hall from Canonical. Um, Michael... Tell a little people about what you do um, with Canonical right now. I am on uh, the community team. I'm one of the community managers for Ubuntu. And my job is to work with the Ubuntu community and make sure that we are giving them all of the information and resources that they need to be uh, good contributors to the Ubuntu project. Now, if I heard that right, you said one of. So you're saying that somehow it supposedly takes multiple of you guys to fill Jono's shoes? I mean, how did it go from being a one-person position to a team of managers? So it it hasn't been a one-person position in quite a while. Uh, We all worked for Jono before he left the company, so we were all doing the same job that we're doing now. We just didn't have the title community manager. There was just one community manager title at Canonical at the time. After Jono left, Rick Spencer, the VP of Engineering, who that position reported to, decided that the entire team was already doing the job of community manager. So we should all have that title officially. And then there would just be one team manager that reported to him. Okay, and you've been with um, Ubuntu for quite a while. What all have you done for either you know inside of um, Ubuntu community or for Canonical? Or what have you done inside of Ubuntu before you became a part of Canonical? So before I joined Canonical, and actually right after I joined Canonical, I was a web developer. So I focused mostly on Django projects. Um, When I got involved in the Ubuntu community, one of my first things that I was involved in was the Loco Team Portal, which is at loco.ubuntu.com. It's a resource to track what teams are doing uh, across the wider community. And that was a Django site, so it worked for me to get involved with that. So if I understand you right, you're saying you got a job at Canonical before becoming a part of the community? No, I was in the community for about two and a half, three years before I joined Canonical. So what were you doing in the community before you joined Canonical? That's the, the local team portal that I was working on. I was doing that before I joined Canonical. So that's a, an open source project. It's community developed and community run. Um, I was also working on the Summit project, summit.ubuntu.com. It ran the UDS schedules. So I worked on that before I joined Canonical also. That's another Django project. And what brought you to the Ubuntu community? So I had been using Ubuntu itself for a couple of years before I really found out about the community around it. And uh, I found out first about my local community in uh, Florida. So there was a meetup close to me that I went to, and I met uh, a guy named John Pugh, who worked at Canonical at the time, and about a dozen other uh, Ubuntu community members or Ubuntu users that were really excited about it. And so that really led me down the path of being involved uh, in the community itself. I got involved in my local team. We hosted some local events. And uh, from there, that's how I learned about the local team portal and the need for a web developer there. So one thing kind of led to another. So... Now, what is your history with Linux in general? 
Uh, my first Linux experience was back in 1999, and it was with uh, Caldera Open Linux, which uh, eventually became SCO and tried to sue all of Linux, and that was just kind of bad. Uh, but it was mostly on the server until I started working for Verizon, where we were actually all using uh, CentOS Linux on the desktop on our workstations to develop uh, internal projects. And uh, I've been in a bunch. I've been a Linux user ever since then. It, about a year after that, uh, one of my coworkers introduced me to Ubuntu, and I've been an Ubuntu user since then. All right. So, um, out of the Linux community, what what is the kind of the one thing you've seen that's been just amazed you the most that came out of the you know broad Linux community? It's the the sense of family that you get. I mean, people that you talk to across different projects, a lot of the times you don't even meet in person, you just know them online. But you get to know them so well that they become friends. And some of those become such good friends, they're almost like family to you. I've had people from the Linux community come and stay at my house multiple times, uh, even when they're not part of Ubuntu. I'll go hang out right now after, you know, scale's done. I'll go hang out with the SUSE community manager, the Red Hat community manager. We're all just really good friends across all of these different projects. And now, kind of switching back to Canonical, Canonical's had a lot of big projects in the fire lately. Um, what are some of those, and kind of what's the current state of them? Uh, well, our big project has been the phone, and that's kind of a lot of different projects all rolled into one. So we've got uh, the actual phone platform that we had to develop for that. We've got the new Unity 8 shell, which is on the phone and tablet, and it's going to be coming to the desktop soon. Uh, we've got the Mirror Display server that we needed to run that. Several other, other different things around phone enablement. And then, of course, on the cloud side, we've got Juju and Maz and OpenStack stuff uh, that we've been working on. But that's kind of a little bit out of my area. Most of my focus has been on the phone lately. Well, since you're a community manager and there are people who who listen to this show, who are part of the Ubuntu Linux community. What are Juju and Maz, at least on a high level? Say that again? What are Juju and Maz, at least on a high level? So Maz is a product that lets you take just bare metal servers without anything installed on them and start getting Ubuntu and OpenStack on them automatically. So you just kind of plug them into your data center, you plug them into your network and you boot it up, and they'll do the rest from there. So there's nothing that you have to do as a sysadmin to get that running. And then once you have that on those uh, different servers and you've got OpenStack running on it, then Juju lets you deploy all kinds of different services to those, uh, and it'll orchestrate them and it'll connect them so that you don't have to you know, pass around credentials or whatnot to get them talking to each other. So Juju is the Ubuntu-specific DevOps tool flavor, so to speak. Yes, although I think it'll work on Debian now, too, but uh, you'd have to check with somebody else to make sure on that. All right. And uh, also, um, to go back up on Maz here a little bit, if I'm not mistaken, that does support more than just Ubuntu Linux, correct? I Again, I believe so, but that's been kind of out of my area of focus. If you want to know more about that, um, well, he's not there now, but the guy in the little black cap, Marco Cepi, he can tell you. Well, we'll probably catch up with him to try to talk about those things a little later. So, um, what have, you know, on the community side of things, what have been some of the hurdles you've had to deal with? Well, as well as far as your role as a community manager? A, a lot of the times it's just um, trying to correct misconceptions. You know, when we have a new product come out. There's a lot of work that needs to go into telling people what it is and how it works. And some people will uh, jump to conclusions or assumptions and post about those. And so we have to go around and try and correct that. Uh, sometimes we'll have something that's a little bit controversial and uh, people get upset about that. So we, we have to go out and we need to explain what exactly we're doing and uh, why we're doing it. And most of the time, that's all that anybody needs. What is something that was kind of controversial you had to deal with? Uh, so Mirror is probably the most recent example of that. Um, we, back in 2010 or so, Mark Shuttleworth said he wanted to use Wayland. He saw Wayland as the future display server for Linux. Um, and then you fast forward three years later, and we're getting ready to make a phone. 
and we come out with uh, an alternative display server technology called Mir. And there was a lot of miscommunication on our part then about why we were not using Wayland. Um, and so that has caused us some... And if I'm not mistaken, Mark Shuttleworth not only came out and you know announced Mir, but he came out and he came out swinging and insulting the Wayland project on some of those initial posts, or at least that's how people perceived it. Do you think that might have caused part of um, the controversy? So I don't think anybody came out swinging at Wayland. We posted a wiki page explaining our reasons for using Mir, and some of those reasons uh, claimed that Wayland didn't do things that it actually did. And so we were wrong on that, and we apologized, and we went back and corrected the, the wiki to reflect the actual state of Wayland. But nobody came out and started trashing on Wayland. We all have nothing but appreciation for what those guys have done. It just wasn't what we needed at the time. Well, maybe I've made it a little too dramatic as the explanation, but I, I'm also kind of trying to channel some of what things I've heard, questions I've posed, because... For some people, they're not going to come forward and pose these things. So I apologize if it comes off as that was me personally. So um, what are what are other challenges that are uh, facing Ubuntu right now? Uh, most of our challenges are just trying to get as much done as we can in the time that we have to get it done. I mean, we just got our first phones shipping and it's been kind of a mad dash to get as much done as we could before those phones started going out. And that was in Canonical and the community also. We've got like six or seven community-developed uh, applications that are shipping by default on these phones. And these were requirements that we had from our hardware partners to have these apps available. So we've been working closely with them to make sure that they had all the uh, designs and requirement information that they needed to get those apps developed in time. All right. Um, at this point, is there anything you think I've overlooked, missed, or things just in general you would like the Hacker Public Radio audience to know? Uh, just that everything that we do is open source. So everything on the phone is open source. All of the cloud technology we've developed is open source. Um, if you want to use it on something else, you can grab it and use it on something else. If you want to help build it and make it better or add features to it, please come and join us in the community. Um, and so then I'll ask, where can I get the source for Landscape? Landscape is not one of the products that we distribute. So that's something that we run. Um, that, that is one of the very few things left that are closed source. It, it's not really meant for regular end users. And, and I'll admit, I, I kind of knew that one and what the state of that was. And I just kind of couldn't resist asking about that one because I know someone if I didn't ask the question be, you know about the fact that landscape is still currently closed there would be questions about it later so if people want to get involved with um, Ubuntu Linux uh, where should they start uh, well there's all places all kinds of places you can go to start but uh, you can go to community.ubuntu.com and we have information there about the different parts of the community and links from those pages to where you can get involved with those different teams. And if people would like to get in contact with you directly, if they had any more questions, comments, concerns, and wanted to tell you how much of an idiot they thought I was for some of these questions I've posed, um, how do they contact you? So you can find me. Uh, my username is mpaul119 just about everywhere. So Twitter, IRC. Um, my email address is mhall119 at ubuntu.com, so you can email me directly if you'd like to. All right. Um, and one question I was asked very specifically to try to um, ask of everyone I was doing interviews with, what is your preferred text editor? My preferred text editor. If it's... Mostly it's going to be Genie. I've been using Cute Creator a lot le lately to develop uh, Ubuntu phone apps, but Genie is my go-to text editor. All right. Well, any final thoughts, words, comments, concerns, FUs for me for the questions I've posed? Uh, no, I just want to give a, a shout-out to everyone in the Ubuntu community. You're all doing amazing stuff. If you're not in the Ubuntu community and you're listening to this, come get involved. It's a fun and exciting place. And with that, this has been Lord Drakenblut with Michael Hall. 
a uh, member of Canonical and part of the Ubuntu community at Scale13x. Greetings, Hacker Public Radio. This is Lord Drakablut at Scale13x, and I'm sitting here with Brian Prophet. Um, Brian, what are you here at um, Scale representing? Oh, okay. So um, I'm here um, at Scale um, as a the community liaison for the Overt uh, open source project. Um, Overt is. Um, uh, a product that is designed to manage multiple virtual machines um, in an organization or even up to the data center level. So, as we were discussing a little before we started the recording, this would be something similar to what some people might know as like Vagrant, where it is the interface for building and constructing your VMs and doing some management with them. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. So however you build your, your virtual machine, whether you're doing it on the command line with KVM or you know, you're building it in Vert Manager individually, however you get there, or you can migrate them straight over from VMware. If you've got a VMware um, deployment and you want to switch over to something like Overt, you can just, we have migration tools that do that. However you do that, once you get them to KVM, we're going to be the platform that will let you manage the machines, get them together in clusters, handle the storage, handle the networking in between the, the machines, and hopefully provide everything you need to run a virtual data center. Now, is is it a desktop application? Is it a web web um, application? Well, I'll call it a web application for lack of a better way. Sure. Yeah, so, yeah, um, it's primarily, the, the, the interface with it is a web GUI. I mean, it's basically a, a, a service that runs on a server somewhere. You hop into it through the web GUI. You can also get to it through an API, so you can integrate it with whatever controls you want. Um, you can um, get to it from the command line if you need to and do it that way. Um, it's completely open source, completely free of charge. Um, we serve as the upstream. Um, this surprises people. Um, we're, sp- we're sponsored by Red Hat, but we're not a pure Red Hat shop because there's actually, you know, Red Hat uses it for their commercial uh, Red Hat Enterprise virtualization product, but Wind River uses it for their open virtualization project or product. And they sell it there. It's pure overt. They just repackage it and send it out. And we're really excited about that kind of thing because it, we feel it demonstrates our model. We're not just here, you know, doing it just for Red Hat's good. We're doing it for multiple companies' good. So it makes us happy. Now, some people will be interested. Um, what license is overt under? Um, we're actually under the Apache license, uh, APL uh, or Apache license two. Sorry. Um, and so that's good um, in that, you know, it's open source and everything. We have our source code available on GitHub and whatnot. It can lead to some problems, you know, like, so like Wind River consumes our code. They, re, you know, they're perfectly valid under the license. But we don't see a lot of the, you know, you know push from them back into the upstream, um, and which is unfortunate because... We want to try to be as diverse a community in terms of who's contributing as possible. So, so we we like them to do that, but we've licensed it under the the AL two, um, and we will continue to follow that license. Now, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, but one of the features of the Apache license is that they can take it, they can rebrand it, they they can basically make a completely commercial version of it off of that. Right. Right. And that's exactly what they've done. I mean, that's what we do with um, Red Hat Enterprise Virtualization. That's what um, you know, Wind River's done with their product. They can take that. They are not, it's a permissive license. They're not required to, you know, push anything back upstream. Well, I thought Red Hat um, was pushing more up. We're, we're a little more open with their implementation. This is not meant as, sl- as a slight against anyone oh, no, using no, no. this. Yeah. 
So why would someone consider, say, a home user who's playing with virtualization and stuff, why might a home user consider using something like Overt over, say, Vagrant? Um, so, like, I use Overt at home um, for a couple of reasons. So, one, I've got, like, I've got the obligatory Windows machine at home because there's just a couple of apps that I just really need to have, and I, I've got to have it, but I just have a virtual machine, I you know, so there's that. But then I also use it to manage, you know, I've got a file server that's running own cloud um, for the house, um, so all my kids can put all their file systems in there, um, and I've got a, you know, a firewall server running in there too. Um, that kind of helps lock things down. So that's, you know, if you need multiple services and you want to do it across, you know, multiple virtual machines, that is one way a home user could do it. All right. And just in case people don't know, Vagrant, Vagrant is a tool that when it at least originally started out, targeted VirtualBox as its um, VM or its hypervisor backend. And it was a tool that allowed you to script basically the creation of VMs. You could define the size, you know, information about the networking, the networking hardware, disks. You know, what kind of capabilities along these lines does um, Overt offer? Um, as far as creating VMs, I think that's an area where we're not quite as strong because the presumption of our model is that you've already built your VM already like either through the command line or like through some a smaller tool like Vert Manager. That said, once you have a, a VM created, we have like templating tools and snapshotting tools in Overt. So you can basically clone, you know, the machine that you've made and build on that. So you don't have to do everything outside over and over and over again. You can build a few good models, get them in Overt, and then, you know, snapshot and template them to your heart's content. So, um, Overt is not a tool I would use to say if I wanted to be able to generate 20 different types of VMs all at one time, I would use something else and then potentially pull those into Overt's right. interface to manage them from there. Correct. If you were making 20 different, different, type, different instances of VMs, then, yeah, you would want to try to do that um, through another tool. Or in some cases, our users are pulling, you know, they're migrating from something else and they're, they're pulling them in that way. We have tools for that. Um, if you're, you're creating 20 instances of the same VM, that's where Overt can help you as well. And that helps you to scale out very quickly. Um, but, yeah, as far as, like, actually creating a VM... Um, we do have um, some capabilities of tying into, like, uh, for storage, like a Glance repository. Glance is OpenStack storage, um, cloud storage system. We can connect to something like that, so you can have your VMs sitting in a Glance repository and import them easily from there and, you know, build them that way. So there's multiple ways you can pull things in, but for actual VM creation... You know, typically people are doing that, you know, on their own. They're, they're snapshotting existing machines or whatever and doing it that way. All right. Um, what is Overt primarily written in? I, I, could you repeat that? What is Overt primarily written in? Um, okay, so... so um, we've got a lot of Java in there, uh, quite a bit of Python, and, and quite a bit of C. Actually, the interesting thing, this is why I laughed, um, Overt originally started as a proprietary piece of software. Not a lot of people know this, although it is public knowledge. Um, it was written in C-sharp um, and .NET, and it was written for the Windows platform. And, Red Hat, and this was a company in Israel called Kumranet. Red Hat bought them in 2009, immediately rebranded it um, as as Red Hat Enterprise Virtual, you know, Red, yeah, so Rev, and sold it that way. And that is the only time in Red Hat's history that we were selling a Windows-only proprietary product um, as our, a, a thing. You had to have Windows to run this. But meanwhile, we were doing this whole um, thing where we were converting 
if I may interject here, I actually do remember that. And I remember Red Hat getting a lot of joking criticism to flat out flames for you bought a proprietary application because unfortunately, you know, either through perception or whatever, you know, the message didn't come out that yes, we bought this Windows only tool, but we bought the technology and um, as some people like to call it, um, the AccuHire, where they had purchased the company in part for the talent to get their hands on this because, you know, as we were saying, you know, overt is kind of a graphical front end for dealing with your infrastructure in the back end. So they bought the team that created this um, infrastructure or this uh, management technology and they almost immediately started working on rebuilding that. Yes. Exactly, and that's the great part of this story. From like 2009 to 2011, basically the part of the code that was actually called overt went completely dark, and they spent two years converting all of that .NET code into more of a Java-based and Python-based set of modules that could be used and properly implemented as open-source technology, and... That talent that you talked about, I mean, some of the people at Kumranet um, were directly involved in vetting the KVM hypervisor. So certainly that was a big deal, and having that talent. And they they went under they underwent a great cultural shift where now the people at Kumranet, and they're still mostly based in our Tel Aviv offices, are some of the most outstanding proponents of open source um, technology and community building that I've ever seen. And they really do a great job. They sincerely believe in building community. They want more people to come into over and be a part of our community. It's not just going to be a Red Hat only project. We want it to be as diverse as possible. And so it was a really good turnaround. Now you mentioned Java and I, I feel like I need to ask, do they, does this require Oracle Java to run, or will this run on the open implement implementation of Java? It'll run on the open implementation. So zero problems. You can grab whatever, whatever you're, you know, if you were, say, a Fedora user, the open Java, it ships, you're in good shape. Yes, yes. Um, that's, that's not an issue. Um, occasionally, sometimes our dependence on Java, um, something might, you know, every once in a while, we might have to hold off and you know, like not move, like right now people are wondering why we're not, you know, moving to Fedora 21. Well, because we're using the Java that's in Fedora and we want to stick with that. Um, we did recently, you know, shift our support um, from CentOS 6 and the whole EL6 family over to EL7. So now we do CentOS 7, Scientific Linux 7, RHEL 7. So we did that. We actually did that in mid-cycle because a lot of people wanted it. And, uh, and a lot of that is contingent upon the Java that's being used and keeping, uh, and keeping you know, uh, synchronized with that. But yes, to answer your question, we do use the open uh, Java implementation because it's not Oracle. <laughs> um, so what is the um, community around Overt like? Um, so the community is really, <laughs> there's a couple, there's two things I like about this community. One is it's, um, it's very supportive of users in terms of if you have a question or a problem, you come to our user mailing list, you come to our IRC channel, um, you, documentation on the website, which needs to be improved like every other documentation piece, but you can come there and get what you need as an answer. On the flip side of that, you know, we are, you know, if I look at the numbers of who's contributing, yes, we have contributions that are great from HP and IBM um, and other companies that have contributed and made improved overt. But in terms of numbers, you know, I would like to see a much more diverse community in terms of non-Red Hat people. And so would they. Um, you know, it's not like we're an exclusive club. And we need to, that's one of my main goals as community liaison is to improve that diversity and, and get more people involved in over. And that's, 
getting the word out that it's even there, getting the word out that we're, you know, everybody's welcome to come to the table and contribute what they want. We're excited because we're working, um, there's some work going on in Limpert now, um, uh, incorporating Zen technology. And if that continues, and if it keeps going in the trajectory that we want, you may see Overt supporting Zen machines. And so we're talking to people a little bit about that and seeing what we can come up with there. Now, you, you've mentioned Libvert more than a few times here. Could you explain what Libvert is and why it's important? Um, so Libvert um, sits um, in a layer between the KVM hypervisor and tools like Overt, also to, like individual VM tools like uh, Vert Manager. And Libvert is very much... Um, the, the, the set of libraries, and I'm hugely over-explaining this, which is bad because my boss is the main Libvert maintainer. Um, but, you know, it's, my understanding is that it's a set of libraries that enables, you know, best practice communication between the VMs and the KVM hypervisor underneath and, and allows us to uh, fully get the resources of the host machine. So would it be fair to say it's kind of an abstraction layer between your hypervisor and your uh, graphical front end? Yeah, that's a very yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. I mean, it, not just graphics, but all the other resources that goes along with the hardware. But yes, that's a very good way of saying it. Now, besides just KVM, what else does Libvert uh, support? Because I thought at one time, and maybe I'm hugely mistaken here, that Libvert had support for some even cloud providers like AWS. Maybe I'm mistaken and that was something else, but... No, you're not mistaken at all. So Libvert is being used by a lot of different tools. I mean, Libvert's also part of the OpenStack, um, you know, uh, cloud system. And, and I'm not sure about AWS. I'm fairly sure um, that it's also kind of you know, CloudStack is definitely very interested in it because, you know, they're 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 also used, they're curious about it. It's a really great set of tools, um, but I, I want to I don't want to say AWS. You could be right. I'm not sure. I don't want to say the wrong thing though. But yeah. So if nothing else, if a company had a hyper hypervisor technology they were providing, whether it be you know, an on-premise solution, you know, a cloud solution, a hybrid solution, they could contribute to the Libvert project. And if they really, really wanted to keep their, you know, proprietary hypervisor closed, they could, they could support Libvert to enable people to be able to interact with these things in a more pro programmatic way. Is this... Yeah, I, yeah, I believe that, that if that situation were to arise, yes, they can do that. They can push um, things into the liver upstream. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think Libber is um, released under the GPL model. So if they're using um, if they're using G, um, you know, Libber making changes on the down, they're downstream. They're going to have to push it up to the main, you know, Libber trunk. Um, so there's that. Um, but yeah, that's the situation you described is certainly possible. I, I'm not personally aware of anybody who's doing that. Um, most of the work that I'm aware of is out in the open. All right. And at this point, would you say there, or is there anything you think I've missed or glossed over that you would like the Hacker Public Radio audience to know about Overt? No, I think, yeah, I think we've covered about pretty much the highlights where um, we're growing. We've got a lot of a, a growing user base. We're working on the diversity issue. Um, we're excited about moving forward. Let me ask real quick. When you say diversity issue, what can you clarify that? Because diversity is, well, right. a very diverse term. Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in my, my case, in this context, when I refer to diversity, I'm referring to um, not gender or race. I'm referring to people who are working on the project who are not Red Hat. Um, because right now the ratio of Red Hat to non-Red Hat contributors is very biased towards the Red Hat side. And that's 
you know, that's not good as an open source project. We need to have more non-Red Hat participants, and that's something we're working on. Um, and let me pose this question to you and get your thoughts, feedback on this. Um, perhaps it's just a perception issue because Overt is, you know, was purchased by Red Hat. You know, they may have granted, created as a GPL. Perhaps there's this misconception that be people would have a hard time getting their code if they, you know, were to write a patch, getting their code into the mainstream. Um, yeah, I wish that were the case. Unfortunately, um, we have public stats. Um, if you go to overt.org slash stats, we have a, a community dashboard up there, and you can see very clearly our demographic model of who's contributing and what company they're coming from. And so, you know, it's, it's a very real issue. And also, too, one of the things that makes it difficult is Overt itself. It's there's a steep learning curve on this um, this code. There are a lot of subprojects inside Overt, um, like managing the the hypervisor, managing the scheduling, managing the, the the imaging layers. You know, that's all really complicated stuff. So, if you're a new hacker coming in, we want you to come in, but we also recognize we've got to do a better job of making it easier for outside people coming in. Because right now the learning curve is really, really steep. So, to ask the question, is there perhaps a chance there's more um, the overt project needs to do to get ready to accept more outside contributors? Absolutely. And that is, that is probably, you know, I said my main goal was increasing that red hat, non-red hat diversity. And the way I'm going to do it is to basically lower the barrier to entry to make it very easy for contributors to come on board and start working within the project on whatever they want to do, whether it be coding, testing, we're looking for people to help volunteer on a continuous integration side um, and work with our Garrett and Jenkins, you know, tool sets that we use to do the code. There's a whole, you know, but we got to make that known and, and document it to the point where it's not that hard for people to come on board and start jumping in. Now, if people were interested in trying to get involved with the Overt project, um, what kind of, what areas could you people use help in the most? You know, I mean, right, well, I already mentioned one, which was like, our infrastructure team is really looking for, you know, people who like to volunteer and help out with um, uh, uh, continuous integration and, and helping us do testing as well um, of, of code and doing QA work if, if people are willing to do that. I, for my part, will be willing to work with anybody who want to help with documentation. Um, our storage team. You know, we integrate with Gluster quite a bit, and we, you know, we've got things, you know, smoothed out over there. But now Red Hat's working heavily with Ceph and Block Storage Land, and now we've got that hall, that integration to do. So anybody interested in that field would be very welcome as well. And where should someone go to find more about Overt to learn where things are and? Um, where to go to get involved with the project? Um, I think the best place, well, okay, so to find out more about Overt, you're, you know, people, I encourage them to come to the website, come to overt.org. Um, we have, you know, versions that you can try to download. We even have a live USB version where you can download it, put it on a USB stick, boot to the stick, and just basically try out the interface and the platform live without installing anything. Um, you know, Yes. So this USB image you're talking about, it'll boot up a full graphical environment, bring up you know a web browser with the interface and with KVM already running in the background. Right. It, it it's basically on CentOS seven, um, and it basically auto installs our all in one because there's different ways of doing. You can do like this big all in one package for over, or you can do something small like a, just a node, which is a really you know, just something that runs the hypervisor, not much else. But this would auto-install your all-in-one and give you everything you need and walk you through. And then you use the browser in the live USB, you know, environment and and go in and look and play around with Overt. And if people want to contact you directly for more 
for any more questions, comments, or information they want. Where, where's the best place to do that? Okay, so if they want to contact me personally, um, my um, email address is bkp at redhat.com. Um, also, our, as I mentioned earlier, our user mailing list is very, very active. Um, and so if they go to users at overt.org and pose a question there or reach out there for more information or you know, specific ways that they can help, that's certainly another uh, a good way of doing it. Um, yeah, because it's certainly very active. And just one question I was asked specifically to ask everyone I could, um, what is your preferred text editor? My preferred text editor is Emacs. So, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here. This man likes to boot into an operating system to edit a text file. <laughs> yep. And so, and the reason I make that joke is I actually ran across someone had done a how-to on how to get a system to boot up where Emacs... They did one that was a version with Emacs, one that was a version with Vim, where it was like P, where um, Emacs or Vim were PID one. Right, right, and and I know I know all the jokes and foibles of Emacs. I really got into it when I was working on Linux today because I did a lot of of, of text to HTML conversion, and I a friend of mine built some really great scripts to do that. And since then, I've been really hooked on Emacs. Um, and its scripting capabilities. So I'd just stick with it. All right. Well, this has been Lord Drakenblut with Brian Prophet of the Overt Project here at Scale13x. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.